It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I just want to say to all these people and even MPs who express similar things, you're going to regret it. You're going to regret it. And I think there's a lot of people in the conservative party too who think like, well, just throw them this bone. We're not actually going to do it. And then we'll be able to do the things we want. You can't, you can't do it. You have to stand against it every time. And so to those people who are listening to say like, think about what you're doing. Think about how you're going to feel 20, 30 years from now when your kids ask you what you did during this time. Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and people's unwillingness to just leave trans kids alone and let them live their lives. I knew when I saw that photo, you've maybe seen it, of Alberta Premier Danielle Smith, renowned author and famous son of Northern Alberta, Jordan Peterson, infamous U.S. broadcaster, former Fox News personality Tucker Carlson, and also former newspaper publisher and recipient of a presidential pardon from Trump, Conrad Black. I knew when I saw this photo that something seriously bad was sure to follow. This is not a good omen. But I was not expecting the bad news to drop on Twitter over the faint sound of vaguely jaunty and uplifting country folk music. Prematurely encouraging or enabling children to alter their very biology or natural growth, no matter how well-intentioned and sincere, poses a risk to that child's future that I, as Premier, am not comfortable with permitting in our province. The clip you just heard is Danielle Smith. And on January 31st, she published a video against the backdrop of a painting depicting some of Alberta's famous agricultural landscapes. I think some canola fields were in the background. While she unveiled what many are calling the harshest anti-LGBTQ policies this country has seen in recent years. As we work through implementing these policies, that we, as adults in this province, do all we can to depoliticize the discussion and focus on the well This slate of policy announcements comes after last year's vote at the annual Federal Conservative Convention, where members of the Federal Conservative Party voted overwhelmingly to advance a series of anti-LGBTQ policies. And back then, the first openly transgender Federal Conservative candidate had a lot to say about it. It is now the official stated policy of the Conservative Party of Canada, at least in their policy menu to misgender trans women. Hannah Hodson ran for the federal conservatives in Victoria, B.C. during the 2021 federal election. She's since withdrawn her membership from the conservative party and has continued to criticize the party's approach to policies directed at queer and trans communities. 
And major kudos to Hannah, both for putting herself out there as an openly trans candidate for office and for her subsequent outspoken criticism of conservative policy. Existing in public as a queer trans person, and particularly one who comments on politics, can be super intense. Hannah recently called Danielle Smith's new policies a total attack on the rights of trans people to exist. So I wanted to invite Hannah onto the backbench because she knows the ins and outs of the conservative political machine and can help answer the question that's been top of mind for me over these past couple of weeks, which is, why are conservatives so obsessed with trans people? I also invited Mel Woods, a senior editor at Extra Magazine, onto the show. They grew up in Alberta and also happen to be one of the foremost journalists covering queer and trans issues in this country. Hey, both of you. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining me. I am very excited to chat about all of what's been going on. Racers, start your engines. Let's get into it. I want to do for our listeners a little bit of fact-checking of some of the policies that Danielle Smith has actually announced. So when I was reading Danielle Smith's new policy announcements, watching her video with the little jaunty music, I definitely saw some red flags for me, things that based on my understanding of how healthcare for trans youth actually does work, didn't really make sense. And according to Smith, the proposed measures around gender-affirming care are not even really based on current evidence of any sort of problem. They seem to more be rooted in her hypothetical concern about a problem that might arise in the future. So are you basing it on a concern of what will happen or actual evidence of what is happening? A concern of what will happen. Wild for a politician to just sort of admit that they're creating policy in response to a fake problem that doesn't exist. Let's see what these policies are actually rooted in. So the first policy that Danielle Smith announced was forbidding access to puberty blockers and hormone therapy for gender reassignment or affirmation for youth 15 or under, except for those youth who have already started those treatments. So I guess the idea would be that if you are currently on puberty blockers, you're going to be, in theory, allowed to continue taking them. But if you're a kid who comes out as trans, since this legislation, you will not be able to have access to that same care. So where is this one coming from? And does this make any sense at all as a policy? No, it's like saying that you can only give birth control to people who are already pregnant. Like it undoes the whole purpose of why puberty blockers exist as medication, because they are meant to be taken at the start of puberty to prevent puberty from escalating further. And you look at Smith introducing this ban at like 15 You know, the average age that kids go into puberty is like 10 or 11. Some kids start puberty as young as nine. And the whole point of puberty blockers is that when kids start that process and identify things that feel, you know, dysphoric and congruous with their bodies, that they're able to slow that down and essentially delay the decision. It is not about like irreversible changes. And that's one of the things that frustrated me the most about Smith's policy announcements in her press conferences is she keeps on going on and on about irreversible changes. And it's like puberty is an irreversible change. Puberty blockers are about preventing an irreversible change until somebody is ready for it. You take a kid off puberty blockers, their body goes right back into puberty overdrive. And further, they're also something that's utilized by cis kids a lot. You know, precocious puberty is a very real thing. And so Smith has been so far unclear with this policy how banning them for kids under 15 will affect all the different kids who access this, you know, in sometimes life-saving medication. But yeah, banning puberty blockers for under 15 is the one that makes me the most mad almost out of these policies because it just completely, it's essentially banning the medication altogether because the point is that it's taken at a certain age. Yeah, and it, it speaks to, I think, yeah, you talked about a misunderstanding of how any of these things work. I think there's a, a 
very clear ulterior motive. The actual medicine is is sort of irrelevant, I think, in this case. I mean, it's not irrelevant to the people experiencing it, but in terms of the policy, it's I think it's sort of relevant because, like you say, it's then just ban them. Like it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense to do it this way. Yeah, I think this sort of way that it gets framed as a concern is like, oh, we don't know what the long term impacts are. But we do, because as you said, Mel, like puberty blockers have been being prescribed for cis kids. It's not like a new kind of medical treatment. This isn't some like experimental drug that we're giving to the children of Canada. It's like, you know, drugs, when they're put out into the market, have research behind them and testing and studies done. And, you know, puberty blockers have been being prescribed to kids for a long time now. This is not a new phenomenon. And to Hannah's point, what is new is the concern over them. Well, and I think similarly with like hormone replacement therapy, right? Like the reason why it ends up being called hormone replacement therapy is like most of this sort of like exogenous estrogen, exogenous testosterone was developed for cis people who had hormone imbalances. Like it exists as a medication that you can give for all sorts of reasons. And so this notion of like, well, it's experimental that we're giving this to kids who are trans is like not really true. I also think the notion of irreversibility like comes in there quite a lot. And it's like, well, puberty, like natural puberty, whatever puberty you were going to have, if you didn't do hormone replacement therapy, would also be irreversible by that metric. So why is like one kind of change preferable to the other? I mean, I think we know why, right? Like, (laughs) Well, and it also gets into like her other policies here too about, you know, there's, there seems to be a strong kind of perspective from from politicians pushing for these policies to be a, largely against gender-affirming surgeries, and as particularly against gender-affirming surgeries under a certain age. But also overall, as we've seen in the States, you know, these things often escalate to bans on trans healthcare for adults, too. And again, when you start with puberty blockers, that helps make it so you don't need the surge, like as, you know, invasive surgeries often down the line, because you're able to like basically keep your little lump of clay unmolded for a greater period of time. And so it, it kind of, I think, shows the incongruousness of these policies that they aren't actually based in any sort of factor evidence. They're based just in politics. So the second policy plank that we saw coming out was, I think, the one that people were maybe more expecting would be part of the announcement because it was preceded by similar announcements in Saskatchewan and New Brunswick. And this is the pronouns one. So the new announcement that we have in Alberta is that youth 15 and under will now require parental consent to use a name and pronouns at school that are different from basically their birth assignment, their legal name. And then for 16 and 17-year-olds, basically, they can just decide to go by a different name, different pronouns, but parents will be notified. And that's like an automatic thing that will always happen as opposed to basically in the past, depending on jurisdiction, I think sometimes it was like teachers were not allowed to tell parents. Sometimes it would be sort of discretionary. Requiring notification is something that's brand new. So I guess what what are your folks' takes on this one to be fair it's it's like the last one not logical but i also think that it's i don't know how it's going to be enforced that's the thing this is essentially unenforceable i mean they asked the premier over and over again what are you going to enforce it she said well we hope everyone follows the rules but like what if a teenager has a name and they want to shorten it like what if david wants to be called dave you know i assume that's going to be fine but what if the shortened version is a not is a more gender neutral name what if Christopher wants to become Chris and Chris is more gender neutral than Christopher. Will they then have to clear it with the parents? Like these things are a little ridiculous and unenforceable, but that's not the purpose of them. The purpose of them is, as we'll talk about politics. And it's also something, you know, we see in 
And we see this in Saskatchewan right now with how Mo's introduction of this policy is going with the legal challenges and the notwithstanding clause and the continuing legal challenges. And it, it points to that unenforceability and the fact that like kids have rights too. I know that's the thing that keeps on coming up and not just that kids have rights, but also like affirming parents have rights. And like, you know, there's a lot of rights that keep getting lost in this conversation around quote unquote so-called parental rights. And teachers have rights too. You know, teachers have the right to create a safe space for their kids. And something that's come up in a lot of conversations I've had around these policies in the last couple of weeks is when I was a kid in Alberta, growing up in central Alberta, I had one openly queer teacher and I remember her very vividly and, and was very, I, at the time, I didn't know, would be very influential on me. And it's like, okay, so that teacher wants to create a safe space for students and they're going to get punished within their workplace. You know, this becomes a labor issue uh, to a certain extent where when we're trying to enforce these things, you're coming down and cracking down teachers having pride flags in the classrooms and and not following these rules and protecting their kids because that's their job as teachers to protect their kids. It's a really slippery slope that gets so scary to think about what enforcement of that looks like. And we see that happening in the States. And I, I, that's going to come up a lot in this conversation. It goes like, if we want a model of how these things get enforced or how, what they look at, we look at Florida, we look at Texas, we look at, you know, Missouri, like there's lots of places where these these things are happening. And that's not good. Yeah, because I, I think it's like pretty clearly a policy that is not going to be attempted to be enforced across the board. Kind of going back to this issue of like things that have been happening in the states that I think are a bit harbingers of things to come here. The third policy is basically this like protecting women's and girls sports is the framing of it. Banning trans girls and trans women from participating in competitive women's sports and basically requiring these people to play in gender neutral or co-ed sports instead. This is, I think, an issue where a lot of people who see themselves as being supportive of trans people, of the right of trans people to participate in public life, still, I think, get sort of tripped up and like they're really rooted in like this notion of like, oh, the biological reality of sex is such that like we can't ever let trans women play sports. I have a lot of feelings about this, but I want to turn to both of you first uh, to get your takes. I probably land not on the total like unchecked. I think the rules that the Olympics has been using for many years are pretty okay in terms of, you know, there has to be hormone levels checked because that's more of the issue with you know, muscle mass development than chromosomes. So I think that that seems to have worked fine. I mean, we don't have a trans person, I think, winning like, ever, and they've been allowed for decades. And we see now a lot of international sporting bodies, their new rules are, you can, if you want to compete as a female, you can never have gone through male puberty. But if the Alberta rules go forward, that can never happen. So the Alberta government's essentially saying, Alberta trans women can never compete. I mean, I don't think that's their top of mind thinking, but that is, again, a result of what they're doing. No, and, and so much of the policy behind it is also grounded in a lot of misinformation that's circulating online, particularly around trans women in sports. And, you know, Smith, when asked about this policy on Monday in Ottawa, you know, cited, I think her exact words was, oh, I saw this women's rugby match. I just saw a video making the round about a rugby game where one woman was just picked up and pile drive by a much stronger transgender female athlete. It's like, I've seen that video too, because it went viral on right-wing social media a couple weeks ago. And plot twist, it's a cis woman in the video. It's not a trans woman in the video at all. You know, it's a video from 2022. And it's a Papua New Guinea rugby match. And the player's name is Joanne Lagona, not a trans woman at all. And so when Smith is offhandedly citing this sort of online misinformation, you know, lack of a better term, fake news, whatever you want to call it, 
in justifying these sorts of policies, it shows how not grounded in actual facts they are. And, and I agree with Hannah in that the issue of hormone levels and all that stuff is really complicated. And like I work in queer and trans media. It is something that I am in my head all the time about you know, how are we handling this in the best ways possible? But at the same time, for the like rec leagues, in kids leagues, and in somewhere like Alberta, you know, by banning this and enforcing this and turning it into a moral panic, you're going to have a whole generation of trans girls who face mental health crises. You know, like there's going to be a lot of repercussions of like banning them from participating. You know, we talk about let them play and the right wing media's obsession with this, you know, places like Rebel Media, places like air quotes journalists, in that realm are so hypervigilant about this. They're attending kids sports games in Ontario. They're attending kids sports games where there's reports of a trans athlete competing. And how's that going to go for those kids? How's that going to go for their teammates, for their friends, for their classmates when there's this like mob coming and hyper-policing their, you know, a 12-year-old or something? These policies create concern. They're not based on concern, but they say to people who've never thought about a kid getting bottom surgery in their life or never thought about you know, trans women playing sports in their life. Hey, this is something you should worry about. And then that's how these snowballs start to pick up and spiral and 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 go down the slope. And that's how we end up with like Florida or whatever. Is we're manufacturing these moral panics around trans people, around trans kids transitioning too quickly, trans women dominating at sports that are not actually based in any fact. The example I always bring up is the uh, the International Chess Federation or whatnot banning trans women from competing in women's divisions. And it's like, okay, hello, everybody who's in favor of this. I would love for you to unpack to me what you think the biological advantage that trans women have over cis women in chess. And you know what? If they're going to say women aren't as smart as men, that's what they're going to try and say. And then you're like, hmm, uh-huh, I see what you're doing. It's misogyny. That's the these things, the, the secret reveals so often is, oops, misogyny. And that is the case behind these anti-trans policies so often. The, I'm literally, I'm like so vigorously nodding my head because the amount of times when, okay, when I was on television doing trivia, the most successful woman to have ever played Jeopardy on TV is a trans woman. I am the second most successful, I guess, like woman, if you if you want to call me that, I guess, to have played Jeopardy. And the amount of people that were like, ah, like finally a, a real woman champion, like, you know, as if somehow trans women have a biological advantage at what, like pressing the buzzer faster, like at remembering Wikipedia lists of things. Like it was actually ridiculous. It was just like, say you think women are dumb because that's what you're saying. Is If you think that like we can't compete in this kind of competition, it's absurd. But yeah, I, I really appreciate both of you kind of making the point of like when we talk about regulating trans participation and specifically the participation of trans women and girls in sports, like most sports is not professional sports, not high level competition, right? Most sports is like Timbit soccer. It's your rec league, you know, that you maybe play in on the weekends or whatever. And the point of those spaces is not to like truly pursue athletic excellence in most cases. It's really to allow people to experience the joy of sport. And these policies often in the U.S. have been responsive to, like, one trans girl wanting to play on her high school basketball team, one trans girl wanting to participate in, like, a swim meet. And I think that to create legislation that basically is targeting these, like, single instances, to me, I think quite clearly shows that it's not really about protecting women and girls' sport. It is about generating this sort of moral panic. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In so much of the conversation so far, we've been talking about how these are made-up problems, essentially, that the government is responding to. And I think a lot of it is serving to generate fear and moral panic among people who maybe don't know any trans people or, like, don't think that they know any trans people. And then they, they there's sort of this notion of, like, what are they doing with the kids in the schools? Like, as though all of a sudden, like, trans people are everywhere and it's, like, somehow a massive threat to the fabric of society that kids are sort of questioning certain norms and ideas that people of our age, I think, were, like, definitely raised with about what gender is, what it means to be a man or a woman, what have you conservatives in particular have really latched on to this issue. So, Hannah, I think you have like a really unique perspective on this as someone who was involved in conservative politics. I guess what I want to know is like what drew you to the conservative party? Because I think that there is this sort of idea of like queer and trans people. There isn't really space or alignment for them to be involved in conservative politics. Yeah, and I grew up in rural northern Alberta. So it was kind of that was the, you know, the family religion, as it were was the Conservative Party. And I went to U- University of Victoria for my undergrad. And I found the extremism, I'll use that word, air quotes, because extremism that I found off-putting there was the, you know, 2012 tumblr ification kind of quote-unquote social justice warrior stuff. And that was very off-putting to me because I felt like it was not inclusive. And so that drove me towards more kind of conservative parties. And I worked for the BC, former BC government. And then I went to work in Ottawa for the conservative party. And especially under the leadership of Aaron O'Toole, I felt like we were doing good work. I felt like, and that's why I ran. We were really trying to moderate and trying to kind of bring the party into the, what I thought was the 21st century. What eventually sort of led to your break with the party? I think my politics have somewhat changed, but I do believe in like a lot of the things that the party purports to believe in, but doesn't really anymore. And I think that's the issue is that conservatism is not the conservatism and the political realities are changing. In terms of driving away, the first big break was the convoy, living in Ottawa and being harassed constantly going to work and seeing people that I since work for supporting them. And then Aaron O'Toole being kicked out, I just kind of walked away a little bit and professionally anyway. And then when all the anti-trans stuff started happening in New Brunswick and all these things, I just said, I can't do this anymore. The idea of personal freedom is just gone. Like, it's just it's just not a thing anymore. It's, you know, the state definitely should be in the bedrooms of the nation. Yeah. And so when you decided to leave conservative politics, I know you gave an interview uh, with the CBC where you said that when you were going door to door talking with voters, like these issues of regulating the lives of trans people was not what people wanted to talk about. Talking to voters door to door, no one wanted to talk about these issues. People want to talk about housing costs. People want to talk about inflation, climate change. No one wants to talk about these issues except presumably the members and voting members of the Conservative Party and members of caucus. Why is this issue top of mind for the Alberta government right now? I think some people probably in their minds believe it is concern for children. 
the reality is it's, it's entirely political. So basically in Canada and Alberta, the proportion's a lot higher, but basically in Canada, you know, there's 15-ish percent of people who are really socially conservative. Their big issues for a long time were abortion, was the big issue for them. That was what we heard all the time from them. And groups like Campaign Life Coalition take back Alberta now. And they have outsized power within the Conservative Party because they donate a lot. That's who donates. Angry people donate. They also stack uh, electoral district association boards. The people who are your MPs hearing from on a day-to-day basis are not regular people in the community. There are people who are very angry about some specific thing. And this is a way to get them on side because the the, the public has sailed on abortion issue. That's not going to ever happen. Like that's completely off-putting to suburban white women voters who decide that elections in Canada. This is not. This is not off-putting to a 55-year-old white woman who grew up in second-wave feminism. This is makes sense to them in a lot of ways. And so that's, it's a bone they're offering to the social conservatives to say, yeah, yeah, we'll do this if you're on side with us. I agree with everything that Hannah's saying, where it is, it's about giving something to that base. In Alberta, there's a big pressure on Daniel Smith right now. You know, Kenny was ousted in a spicy way by those Take Back Albertans, by a certain corner of the party who in many ways thought that he wasn't hardline on COVID enough. Uh, And by hardline, I mean soft (laughs) in terms of uh, uh, not having enough policy, uh, too much government intervention when it came to COVID and whatnot. Kenny went out in a kind of a blaze of glory. Smith came in fresh off of her first time in politics back you know, when I was a college student in Calgary and came into this united conservative party of the progressive conservatives and the wild rose and had to position herself against Brian Jean and that leadership. And she promised throughout a lot of that, that she would not, I think the exact quote was using trans kids as political football. She promised that, she promised that, she promised that, that won her the leadership. Cut to her being leader now, that base is only getting louder, angrier, and richer. And we saw that at their party convention too, like we saw with the federal conservatives We saw them pass those kinds of policy resolutions that were the table setting for what was introduced last week. And it became very clear that she cannot avoid playing political football with trans kids anymore. She can't keep towing that line. She kind of was forced into a wall of having to do this, especially seeing it work in New Brunswick, it work in Saskatchewan, Polyvere, you know, boosting it at the federal level. It is kind of inevitable for a lot of conservative premiers to dip their toes into this water to feed that base. And I'm going to be very curious to see in the coming kind of weeks and months, you know, Ford has come out and said in Ontario that they're not going to do this in Ontario, and which is kind of surprising to me that he was so kind of definitive about that. That pressure may come in Ontario at a certain point because that base continues to be quite loud. I think it'll be less in Ontario because Ford's base is largely suburban Toronto, I mean, I think I truly believe that all things considered, Scott Moe and Daniel Smith probably wouldn't have pursued these if they hadn't been forced to. Blaine Higgs, I think, might be a true believer. <laughs> yes. But that's why he was the first one. Yeah. Doug Ford's not an ideological true believer, but they have to do it because that's who's in the party. I mean, these parties are not a lot of people. Like, I think people imagine they're these huge organizations. You could go to like a fairly crowded bar in Edmonton on like a weekend and bring people and take everyone and take over a political party. Like, it's not a lot of people. It's angry people who are usually retired, who have money and are just want to be mad at things, but they control who's leader. Very much so. You know, I, a few years ago, when I used to work for HuffPost Canada, I went to, a, when Wexit was a thing, I went to a Wexit rally in my hometown in Red Deer as, and like reported out this big feature about going to a Wexit rally in my hometown. And 
it was so interesting. I've been thinking about that night a lot this week because it's like, oh, those are the people. Those are the people who have now, you know, the entire board of the UCP is controlled by Take Back Alberta. Like those are the people who are making the decisions for the party and getting these things put forward. And I do agree with you, Hannah. I think I think Blaine Higgs, but Blaine Higgs is a true believer in the sense that he got it from the states, and that's where we, you know, we track track this path where you know he has cited things he's read. He's talked to you know Jordan Peterson. He's talked to the 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 thinkers and the people in those spaces that helped influence him again not even creating a policy rolling back an inclusive policy seeing something and being like actually i would like it a different way and that is like the spark that has ignited what's coming out across canada and we we called it that at the time back the queer and trans people were raising alarm bells about new brunswick back in may and it's just become this like i keep calling it the cause du jour for the conservative party in canada like it is the cause it is the thing that that loud vocal base wants. They've seen it work in New Brunswick. They've seen it work in Saskatchewan. Now it's in Alberta. And the problem with what's happened in Alberta is now it's beyond pronoun policies. You know, obviously the pronoun policies, I personally strongly disagree with them. But by introducing these kind of medical policies and introducing these sports policies, is that going to become the cause du jour in other provinces? Is that going to be the thing that the federal conservatives push in the next federal election? Is that going to become the moral panic, the talking point that we see going forward because Daniel Smith took that leap? I think Pierre Polyev, in his dream world, never mentions this again. Mm -hmm. I think that it's not going to be in the platform. His thing is he wants the people who care about this to think they're going to do it, but he like they don't want to talk about it. Because the reason you said, like, other than Alberta, Saskatchewan, and then New Brunswick, I don't know where this, I don't know if this is going to, anywhere, like a province this goes to next of the, with the current governments. And I think that federal conservatives, he had to say something. I think we should protect the rights of parents to make their own decisions what does it mean? with regards to their children. And I believe that adults should have the freedom to make any decision they want about their bodies. And he chose, unfortunately, in my opinion, but he doesn't want to talk about this because it's a loser electorally. It's a winner mm -hmm. internally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Smith was the same way. Like Smith was avoiding talking about it for so long. After the her after the party passed the resolutions in the fall, she was very much like, "We'll see, we'll see, we'll see." And I think what sparked her doing it now, frankly, was the weekend NDP. I think with Notley resigning and that party entering a big race, they are weakened right now. And in terms of it being able to slide through the general populace, now is the only time for her to do it. And so that's why she took the leap. But I agree. I think that if she had her way, she would have just never touched this. Yeah, I think like what this all reminds me of is the sort of conservative, like the federal conservative, especially approach to the abortion issue, I think has like also really followed this pattern of you want the real true believers, social conservatives to believe that you are on their side. But then you want to kind of avoid touching the issue in terms of actually incorporating any of it into a platform because you know that then you sort of get the activism from feminist organizers or from queer and trans communities that would like sort of come out in response. And most people just like don't really care enough about this issue one way or the other to make it a winning electoral issue for like the masses in suburban Toronto, say. The other thing that this makes me think of is just like the generation of this moral panic around uh, the existence of trans people in just society has been going on for years. Like one thing that I try to avoid doing when I am talking about things like this is kind of 
the way that we sometimes in Canada, I think, discuss uh, moral panics around queer and trans people as having purely been imported from the States. And there definitely is a lot of very direct inspiration of policy that we can see with Blaine Higgs getting some of this like pronoun policy pretty directly from things that have happened in the U.S. But at the same time, it's like I was at U of T when Jordan Peterson like became famous. It sucked. It was not fun. He posted his video. Basically, his original rise to fame was because he was criticizing the inclusion of gender identity in the Canadian Human Rights Code, Bill C-16 from like 2016, saying it was going to force him to like compelled speech was the phrase that was going to force him to use gender neutral pronouns. And he ideologically doesn't believe that there is such a thing as being non-binary. And so therefore, this is like forcing him to speak things that he does not believe are true. And he was basically claiming that you were going to get fired or you could go to jail over it and all these things that just like were not actually how the legislation worked. This is how he made his career was by ginning up this kind of moral panic. And now he like goes to the States and does speaking tours. He gets invited to places like the Oxford Union to basically expound upon these subjects. And he's been a major participant in driving these sorts of moral panics in the U.S., which then, of course, filter back to here. So I I think it's like this cycle of just sort of bringing people into a conversation about a problem that, again, does not exist. You know, we've talked a bit about Poilievre had a public reaction to these announcements and has now sort of made a statement about his take on it. What actually was that statement? Because I think there was a little bit of like throwing red meat to the social conservative base. But then, you know, again, trying to get back to like what he sees as his winning issues, which is like inflation, housing, like all the stuff that the liberals are doing badly on right now. For him, it's a caucus management problem, to be completely honest. That's the biggest thing driving that right now. Because there are are a number of people in caucus who really, truly believe this is the most important issue in the country. And a lot of people who don't. But the people who don't are generally concerned about other things. You know, their their issue is housing. Their issue is whatever, whatever it could be. But, you know, the Les and Lewis's of the world, uh, this is, and some others, many from Alberta, this is a top issue for them. They care deeply. So in his mind, yeah, I might make a bunch of people in caucus angry but not angry enough to leave. But if I say no, the last thing I need right now, which is division in my party, in my caucus, people proposing private members' bills that make us all look bad. So that, I mean, that's probably a big reason that is driving him to do this. He doesn't want people like Arnold Viersen or Kathy Wagenthal to all of a sudden stand up in the House and start attacking trans people. He wants to maybe try to massage that, but the result is bad policy that will hurt people. Because like what he said in that scrum specifically was that he he was asked directly if he uh, opposed beauty blockers under 18. And he said, yes, just he he, and that's that's the clip. Do you oppose beauty blockers under 18? Yep. You are against puberty blockers for kids under the age of 18. Yes. And that is a a statement to make because that is more extreme than Smith's policy. That is that is saying and that is even more of a misunderstanding of puberty blockers than Smith's policy in many ways. But Smith is in the same situation, too. You know, we've seen the federal conservatives, you know, close ranks. You know, we are not nobody is commenting on this besides him. And similarly, you know, we have seen Smith was the only one out there in that video. She was the only one at that press conference on Thursday. She was the only one in Ottawa at those press conferences really speaking on these issues for the same reasons, which is the spectrum of people who feel one way or the other about these within the UCP is also quite broad. 
I think that, again, because it's sort of stuff that affects a relatively small portion of the population, unfortunately, I find that like a lot of these sorts of policies, if you are not yourself trans or if you do not yourself know a a number of trans people that are affected by this, it's just sort of like washes over you and you don't really think about what the implications are for people. And so it just doesn't become an issue that like forces people to break with a, a political party is sort of how I see it. But also I think it's so interesting, like there's this perception I would say that I think sometimes in queer and trans spaces, we get into this mode of assuming that anyone who sort of goes along for the ride, there's this language of like, they're all transphobes, they're all homophobes, they all really, really buy into this stuff. And I think it's interesting that like Danielle Smith is somebody who is the leader of a party that has a lot of social conservatives, doesn't really, just doesn't seem to care about this issue that much, particularly, right? And, you know, You watch the video that she released announcing these policies, the language in it and the language in the tweet was fascinating. And I'm going to find it and read it because I cannot stop thinking about it. The tweet goes, gender identity can be a hard thing to talk about, especially when you are involved. And I'm like, what does it even mean to be involved in gender identity? Like, are we all not involved in gender identity? Not to them. (laughs) No, not to them, right? I think to them to be involved in gender identity means that you are trans or particularly you are a parent of someone who's trans. And I think that one thing that both of you brought up earlier in our conversation was this notion of like the discourse around parental rights and whose rights seem to matter in these kinds of conversations, right? So this notion of like, well, especially when you are involved really means you're involved in the concept of gender identity. If you are a parent of a trans child, that's like being framed somehow as the person who's the most affected by a kid questioning their gender or a kid identifying as trans. I want to talk a little bit about this because the term parental rights, I think like sounds, it's a really, really smart piece of political framing because it sounds so good and so not controversial. Like, who wouldn't want parents to have more rights? Like, parents are a group that I think as a society we, like, really value a lot. The work of parenting is something that, like, people from across the political spectrum generally respect, even as we don't always support parents maybe as much as we need to, like, financially in different ways. So the notion of, like, well, yeah, parents should have rights over their children, I think, like, sounds really good. But what is this really about? There's some other language that's interesting around preserving choices for kids. And I think that this language is is quite loaded, and I want to spend some time unpacking that. 100%. And and something that, like, has come up a lot about this, and I mentioned it earlier, is the rights of affirming parents, too. You know, an aspect of this policy that we we haven't touched on yet is the the sex ed stuff about how, you know, all sex ed and teaching about gender identity is going to have to be approved by the Ministry of Education and third-party sex educators and whatnot. And to a certain extent, that's taking away parents' rights to their kid having an inclusive sex education and having inclusive education at school. And those parents are going to, because those those kinds of restrictions and, and and requirements of having the ministry approve every lesson mean that less teachers are going to teach this stuff, frankly, because that's how how these things go. If you're going to have to get every time you mention gender identity in school approved by the ministry, you're just not going to talk about it because as a teacher, your life is hard enough. And then that means that those kids and those families that are, are seeking out that affirming education aren't going to have access to it. And so I think getting lost in the shuffle so much here focusing on parents is this idea of, you know, the rights of parents who want to be, a, you know, in control of their kids or, or hyper aware of what their kids are up to at school. But what about the rights of the parents who 
you know, want their kid to have freedom and space and, and safety to express those things uh, is, is a big problem that gets missed in a lot of this discourse. And a lot of the framing of this is like a parent's rights versus a child's rights situation. I want to talk about, you know, the use, specific use of the word decision and choice, because it came up over and over and over again in her messaging. Kids are not making irreversible decisions when uh, they may not be mature enough to make those decisions. We want to make sure that those adult decisions are made as adults. A decision that impacts your life, those life-changing decisions. Children going through these very difficult uh, decisions through puberty. It's on purpose because a great number of people, and I can say, I'm not going to say that everyone who's voted for the UCP is all of a sudden a transphobe. But I think there are a lot of people who just truly don't like trans people and they really don't want their kid to be. I mean, and it's true of being gay, too, or being kind of anything that doesn't fit within the box of what the parent, I guess, imagines they would be. That's why we see a lot of homeless LGBTQ teenagers. I kind of wish they would just be honest. I kind of wish they would just say, yeah, we don't really think kids should be trans, so we're banning it. Like, stop pretending that it is helpful. You know, kids can make these choices, 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 because they see it as a choice. Fundamentally. They see it as a choice or a decision. And I think that for me, that is one of the most important angles to look at this because I think it puts things in, in important context. These kinds of policies and the language around them and framing of choice and of you know, delaying irreversible decisions or whatnot, like Hannah said, it's all part of a kind of larger narrative to kind of erase the idea of trans kids and, and say that, oh, it's, it's, it's an adult thing to be trans. And that is like an inherent sexualization of trans people. And like trans people are not an inherently sexual or dangerous people. Uh, like we are, I don't know, just people. And we in the LGBTQ community have to be aware that a lot of people that aren't necessarily bad or even don't have bad intent see being trans and in, in fact being any LGBTQ as an inherently sexual thing. So when you say I have a trans kid, a lot of people think you gave your kid a sex change operation. It's like, no, they're eight. They just use a different name. But a lot of people's concept of gender is genitals. And a lot of people's concept of being gay is I'm actively having gay sex at this moment. So if they're saying, like, well, there's gay propaganda in schools because there's a story about someone with two dads. Like these things are just a little ridiculous because that's the conception that people have is that these things are kinks. Like a lot of this sort of moral panic, I think, is about the idea of there being more queer people, there being more trans people, that it is inherently something that is to be avoided. I don't think that it always comes from a bad place. I think that for parents, sometimes if your kid comes out to you as queer or trans, often what you hear parents say is like, they're so upset because it means you're going to have a harder life. Like that's one reason why people think it's sort of a situation to be avoided. I think, unfortunately, the reality is like life can be harder for queer and trans people. And so I think it's like that's a conversation that hopefully parents and kids can have. But definitely there's also parents who just think it's like inherently a bad way to live, that it's immoral and that that's why they think it's something to be avoided. And it is a bad thing if more people express their gender in a way that like makes sense to them, more people participate in kinds of relationships that they find fulfilling. They think that this is like sinful, basically, whether it comes from a religious place or not. And so I think that kind of like teasing out like the different reasons of why people have this fear to me feels important. Like, I've had some very good conversations with, like, family members where I've kind of explained, you know, like, they're not teaching the kids to be trans in schools. They're just saying, this is something that exists. And if you feel like this resonates with you, then now you know what it is to be trans. Like, you don't have to kind of, like, figure it out in adulthood as so many of, like, people of our age had to. 
One hundred percent. And you know, it, so much of this is rooted in like the you know the, the technical term is social contagion theory, and this idea that like being trans is a trend or something that like kids pick up at school because their friends are doing it. And, oh, these pronouns. Oh my goodness. They, them it's I'm doing it because it, I want to fit in or I want to be like included or whatever. And, you know, so much of that's been disproven, but the fact of the matter is we see all these statistics that come forward about younger generations, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, you know, having higher identification of being queer or trans than previous generations. And the reason for that is because they have the language to describe how they feel. Trans people have existed throughout all time. We just have not called ourselves trans forever because we didn't have the language to determine that. You know, you go all the way, you know, indigenous cultures have many conceptions of gender and third genders and, and, and things like that. But even just going into like the 1900s, we hear all these great stories about historical trans people. You know, we hear about trans folks getting, you know, gender affirming surgery in the middle of the 1900s. Like we, we these these things are not new at all. The only reason that we get this reporting about more and more kids coming out as trans is because they're getting exposure to it in a positive way. That's all this is about, is about kids having access to words to describe who they are and, and to identify with. And a big influence on me, you know, I'm somebody who came out as trans in my mid-20s, and it was for me seeing older people like in their 60s and 70s say oh if i had the words that they have today if i had access to this stuff today i probably would have come out of trans but these these people you know on tiktok or whatever say oh it feels like it's too late for me and then it, that was a big impetus for me personally to be like but i do have all that so i can do that and and that's what i want for the kids in the future i want kids who don't have to wait until they're in their mid-20s or who do make it to their mid-20s i want to talk more broadly about the future i guess in terms of policy what comes next? I know some of the stuff that we've been talking about has been discussions of like possible legal action in response to some of these policies that have been announced in Alberta. Also, like there has been, I believe, some charter challenges advanced um, maybe in Saskatchewan. So that's something that I'm kind of going to be looking out for. I don't know if either of you have any thoughts on like what you'll be looking out for with this going forward. Some things will need legislation, some won't. So I think that'll be, some things are just going to be government policies. There will be legal challenges. They'll have to use a notwithstanding clause for the legislative aspects if they want to get around legal challenges, which I suspect they will. Will there be a, a stop to the policy while the case is being decided? We don't know. I've had a lot of people asking me being like, how can I help with the legal challenge? What should I be doing? Like, and like, because I think everybody's fresh off of Saskatchewan and is like, we saw this happen in Saskatchewan. We saw this legal challenge go forward. The fact of the matter, what's happening in Alberta is we don't know, like Smith has been so kind of vague about like, what of these will be laws? What will be policies? When it will be enforced? How it will be enforced? When it will actually be introduced? You know, she said the fall, the fall's a long time away. So I think that there are a lot of people working in the background right now at you know, queer and trans organizations in Alberta, at legal organizations, at social justice organizations, getting ready for when the time for the legal challenge is right to have it and be ready to go. But at a certain point, you kind of have to know what you're challenging before you can put that forward. What I'm going to be paying very close attention to is the political ramifications of this for these leaders, you know, and if this continues to be the cause du jour that it has been for the conservatives. Like I said, Alberta provincial politics are in a very interesting place right now. So this own party members are going to have to talk about this at some point. She can't keep them like locked away in the cabinet forever. They're going to come out. They're going to start saying statements about these things. They're going to start talking about how it's going to be implemented. And I'm very curious about the kind of ripple effects within the party and within policies for Smith. And then similarly for Polyev, you know, if we, if what, if such when we enter a federal election, 
how much of these policies are going to be on that platform or not is is a is a big question mark that I'm going to be paying very, very close attention to. I think that what may be interesting is whether the liberals try to do that thing that they do where they use these wedge issues as ways of trying to smear the entire conservative party as being full of dangerous social conservatives because they often do this with abortion where they like try and basically scare people into thinking that the federal conservatives are going to do something to roll back abortion access. The conservatives never really attempt to roll it back. It just is a conversation that happens. And yeah, it, it gets it gets the people agitated. It's fundraising. It's fundraising. In the same way that the conservatives make money, conservatives make money when they liberals say anything about guns and the liberals make money when the conservatives say anything about abortion because they send out an email blast saying they're coming to take it but it's not it's not real so i would just give one parting shot to the conservative political staffers which i'm sure are listening the ones especially the ones who have texted me told me that they hate this but they have to go along with it because it's their job i know you're looking at well if the conservatives win which they likely will i'm gonna get a good job and i'm gonna get a job in a minister's office and i'm gonna you know, make a lot of money, more money, which is true. But I just want to say to all these people and even MPs who have expressed similar things, you're going to regret it. You're going to regret it. And I think there's a lot of people in the Conservative Party, too, who think like, well, just throw them this bone. We're not actually going to do it. And then we'll be able to do the things we want. You can't. You can't do it. You have to stand against it every time. And so to those people who are listening to say, like, think about what you're doing. Think about how you're going to feel 20, 30 years from now when your kids ask you what you did during this time. Lives are at stake. I know that's always like big with this, but we're talking about kids. We're talking about young people. We're talking about trans adults, too. And we're talking about suicide rates, mental health, all these sorts of things here. This is not just like something to play political football with. These are the, you know, real people are impacted by these policies, whether they get implemented or not, frankly. And there, there was just a report this week of an uptick in kids getting bullied and having a fear of outing in school in the wake of the One Million March back in September. And so the more that these ideas enter the public discourse and become normalized and, you know, that Overton window shifts around these things, whether these policies actually pass or not, it's, it's going to end up in the long run really hurting a lot of, of queer and trans kids huge. I think that's an incredible note for us to end on. Thank you so much. I think that queer and trans politics is one of these issues where if you are not somebody who is directly affected, your health care is not directly being impacted, you're, you know, an affirming parent, but your child's education is not being directly impacted, it kind of can fall to the bottom of the list of priorities for a lot of people because we see it as this like niche concern that only affects a small portion of the population. If you are trans, if you are queer, it's not a niche concern. And so this notion of like it's somehow fine to give a little bit of political red meat to social conservatives, if you're somebody who's like socially liberal, fiscally conservative or what have you, the notion that it's OK to have a little bit of that social conservatism, I think, is something that people should really take a lot more seriously. We are talking about policies that impact so few children, but impact those children so significantly that make life needlessly harder, really, for people that already are dealing with additional struggles on top of just the regular difficulties of growing up. I think it's absurd to target children because you think it might help you win an election and frame it as being somehow uh, doing them a favor. I want to talk a little bit about the idea of choice and preserving choice, because this was something that came up in our conversation. And I think for me, 
As a gay person, I've always been like a little bit frustrated by the way that the conversation around queerness and around transness has become this one where the main mode of discourse is that you have conservatives like social conservatives who often frame being queer and being trans as a choice and specifically frame it as a choice that we should avoid making. And then on the other side, you have kind of the well-meaning liberals who are like, you know, Lady Gaga born this way vibes. People are gay. People are trans because they just can't help it. This is the way that they are. I think my problem with this framing is, first of all, it sort of still buys into the notion that if you could choose to not be gay, if you could choose to not be trans, well, you wouldn't choose it. Who would ever choose this? And I think that that is a weird underselling of the joy and the beauty of queer life and of trans life and just like the sorts of flourishing that can happen in living these kinds of lives. I think it's not a bad thing for people to have access to a wide range of ways in which they can live their life, to be able to look around at a wide diversity of people who express their gender in different ways, who engage in different kinds of loving relationships, and to think, let me pick something out of this plethora of options that works best for me. I don't think that that undermines the fact that there will be many, many, many people who continue being cis, who continue being straight. That's always going to exist. And you know what? That's valid. We love you. It's okay to do that. But that cannot be the only thing. That cannot be seen as superior and preferable to other ways of living. I love being gay. It rocks. I want queer and trans kids to grow up in a world where we affirm their choice to live life in a way that is maximally happy, maximally meaningful for them. That's what I want to take away from this conversation. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when hopefully you'll have stocked up on knockoff Kleenex, RIP Kleenex existing in Canada. They've pulled out. Uh, Why do you need Kleenex? Well, we're going to be in Pisces season, babes. Let us know what you're pissed off about, what you've been watching closely, and what you want to hear us discuss in the world of Canadian politics. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at canadaland.com, and you can also DM us on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me at Matea Roach on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Hannah Hodson at HannahHodson28 on Twitter. And you can find Mel Woods at IntoTheMelWoods on Twitter, and you can read their work on Extra Magazine. Did you know that they're still making Heritage Minutes? I know some of the old ones really stick in my head. Dr. Penfield, I smell burnt toast, etc. But the production values of the new ones are actually quite good. Recently, a Heritage Minute was released about Jackie Shane, a pioneering trans soul singer who was a beacon of Black queer visibility all the way back in the 50s and 60s. Shout out to my friend Ayo, who was one of the directors on the video. Check it out. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azriye with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.